Robert Mulholland Jr. writes a book about letting, basically being shaped by the word, and um, he goes over Wesley's guidelines for reading scripture, and I thought they were really nice. Basically, the idea is whatever we offer to God, he will use to nourish and transform us. So I really want to encourage you in Romans to offer that to God. Um, a couple of the things is that, uh, like your attention, you, your intention when you approach the Bible, I encourage you to do this in your own reading time and in, in, at Courage Church, but you should read it intending to know the will of God, what God has for you, intending to let the Holy Spirit convict you and the word just stir you and seek to be transformed by that word. Seek to be whole, and the word can help you do that. Um, that's a really valuable thing. Um, and this fixed resolution should be, whatever I find here, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit guide me, and I will obey. Right. I will wear gloves next time I do spray foam. Maybe not, but... <laughs> okay, we're all stubborn. I'm probably the most stubborn of anyone in this room. If you want to fight me, we can talk about it. <laughs> See who's more stubborn. So the idea is this undelayed obedience and you, you see this thing and it's stirring you, it's prompting you. Maybe it makes you angry and you're like, I don't like what this says here. Well, maybe you're misunderstanding it or maybe you really need to fix some things. So we need to approach it like whatever God convicts me for, I need to obey that. Yeah. And I don't want to take time to let it stir and fester and lie to me, whatever it is that's getting between me and the word. So that's the idea. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this space that we can be as a community formed by you, by your word. And I pray that we would approach the scripture today and hear the scripture today, not for information about how to be saved and what to do to get to heaven, but to be formed and changed. And it would be relevant and applicable to our lives today. God, and through until and into eternity. God, I thank you so much for, for Jacob, his partnership with me to, to do this, and I pray that you would just, you would anoint us, God, that this would be your words. These would be your messages that we have coming out of our mouths, and every word that's not you, God, it would just fall to the ground before it even enters our mind, comes out of our mouths, even though it's in our notes, God, that you would form us while we're up here. In Jesus' name, amen. Dude, I'm sorry I cut off your story. Okay, I, yeah. I just interrupted that, back. That's always one of the things I always am like, well, we're tag teaming, we both have these ideas, and I'm always afraid that, like, she'll jump in and, like, jump to my point that I'm, like, building toward or something, and, I, and then I did it to her. So she's like, hey, I can't find my... I, I sort of have She was being start. sneaky because she acted like she didn't have anything right there, but she's actually started telling her story. You guys saw what she did there. Yeah, I, I get it. So, okay, so we're about to read something in just a minute that describes a world in which God gives people up to the lusts in their hearts, the lusts of their hearts. And it's, it's a very complicated passage, and that line in particular uh, has been very difficult for people. Like, why would God give them up? Because it, it sounds an awful lot like God giving up on people. But that is not what it's saying, and it, it's going to take us actually several weeks to sort out exactly what it is saying. So if you don't get all of your questions answered today, please be patient. We're gonna, this is one we're going to go for a little while on. But there's a much, much bigger idea at play here, and the bigger idea is going to be our focus today. So let's read the Word of God together. Let's begin in Romans 1, 18 through 25. Going up there, right? I brought my Bible, but I'd not flipped to it. All right, here we go. For the wrath of God is revealed. Ooh, scary, right? From heaven against all ungodliness, bad, and unrighteousness, bad, <laughs> of men, good, right? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let's hold on to that one. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, it was good, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, 
That's really important too. It's all important. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, keyword, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what we're going to do with this passage uh, is we're going to teach this passage over the next three weeks. And I know we usually go a little bit faster than that through some of these passages, and you may think that that is excessive to spend so long on one set of scriptures, but the reality is this. Romans is a very, very loaded book. Most of you are starting to see that as we get into this. Uh, and, And this is very, very, very foundational. Chapters 1 through 4 are kind of the foundation by which the whole rest of the book springs from. So we're doing a lot of added time and added care to really do justice to, the, to 1 through 4, especially here uh, in chapter 1. Uh, in some of these verses are verses that people have taken to extremes. There's some of the verses that people have really been uncertain about and had a lot of questions about. So we're going to take a lot of care with this. And how this is going to break down is basically this. Today, we're going to kind of focus on the point of the exchange, the exchange of the truth about God for a lie and exchanging the glory of God. It's a very big idea. Uh, the focus is going to be on the glory and on the image of God. And then, um, so that's, that's this week. It's crucial before we get into any of the lists of sins and all these things that we get into that we first focus there. Then next week, we're going to read the exact same set of scriptures again, but our focus is going to be more on verse 25 and about how God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts um, and to impurities. And then in two weeks, we're going to read it again, and then we're going to keep reading, and we're going to actually get into kind of that list uh, of, of, of sins, as many of us call it, uh, that would really make our, that make people in our modern culture very uncomfortable to talk about, because that, it's, it's one of those, there's a lot of stuff in there that's like, hey, that's kind of not easy to talk about. But again, there's a much bigger idea loaded into this whole concept here in Romans than that, and today we're hopefully going to begin to set that up for you. So when most of us read this, and as most of us were reading this passage, most of us focus probably on that line toward the end. They said, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. And we read things like impurity and we read things like dishonoring our bodies and that's where we focus and again we'll get there. But the thing that we need to make sure that we don't miss is actually the very first verse we read. It's verse 18. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven but what is it revealed against? It's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See, Paul does not begin this thing by giving us a sinful action that he's criticizing or condemning. It's actually a lot bigger than that. He says ungodliness and unrighteousness, which unrighteousness literally is actually the word injustice, uh, which we'll come back to injustice later on. But starting just with ungodliness. Ungodliness. Our worlds collapse when we remove God from them. They collapse. That is what it means to have ungodliness. It means we have a life that is void. There's the, we have a life and it's going and it's going without God. There's no God in it. It's void of God. The problem is not that people are doing things that they should not be doing. That is just a result of the problem. The problem is that people have decided that they can live their lives in such a way that says, I don't need God for anything. I don't need God for anything. They've turned their backs on God. And everything that happens thereafter is merely a result of that turn away from God. So the way that Paul puts it, he says they worship the creature or they worship the created thing rather than the God who himself created all of it. In both this passage and in the next passage, uh, and in really this early part of Romans 1, Um, Paul very subtly um, takes us back all the way to the story of really a pre-fallen world uh, in the creation story uh, in Genesis 1 and 2. And we get this kind of culminating moment at the end of the creation story, right? Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is how God created man and woman, male and female, in the image of God. And then he gives us what is known as the cultural mandate. You guys ready for this? I'm going to read Genesis to you just real quick here. The lighting's not awesome in here, but we like it because it feels good. Can anybody see their Bibles? You all are using phones. You guys are good? 
If you have complaints, please talk to us, because <laughs> we like you. All right, so here's this idea. Um, let's see, where do we start? Um, 20, uh, Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's the cultural mandate. This is the rest of it. And fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea, over the birds in the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then if you go down to 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In verse 25, he says it was good. Then he did this thing, and he gave the cultural mandate, and he says it was very good. Things just got better and better with man. So um, this idea that man is bad and we're horrible creatures, God's not saying that. Not in your life, not in the things that you do. Um, you're good. You're good. And I, I, I hope to reframe some of this for you to just see that you're good and God sees you as good. And um, this exchange is really valuable for us to understand. So this cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. We have the image of who God is or made in the image, right? And we talked when we talked about covenants, if you're here, um, what is good? We're, when we define, when Adam and Eve defined for themselves what was good, they said, maybe God doesn't really know, essentially. Maybe I should eat the fruit because maybe God's wrong, essentially. The Tower of Babel. A lot of mistakes in the Bible, you basically see this God saying, this is good and this is what I have for you, and us saying, well, but maybe this thing could be good too. Um, so just the brokenness of that that goodness, that's breaking the image of God. Um, and that's that image of God that we bear, we're all image bearers because we're created in him, his image and it was very good. That's defined by who God is. And Paul talks about it here about the attributes. Um, but it's defined essentially by glory. Now, I don't want you to get trapped in the word glory because I, I've always misunderstood this word. Um, there's a lot of ways to understand it, but what we're talking about when we're talking about the cultural mandate and um, being fruitful and multiplying. We are fruitful, have babies, that's part of it. <laughs> um, there's a promise of the seed in the land uh, that just is threaded through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah. Um, and we won't talk about that today, but if you're familiar with it. But it's, it, it's you know, going to all the world. It's this glory thing, this image of God. Who is God and, and what does that mean? Um, this, this isn't about getting sinners saved, though that's very, very important. This is about how to be saved sinners. And we mean salvation, saved from just awfulness in your life, things that make you suffer, things that aren't what God has for you. What God intended for you and he made you is the image of God and goodness, the very good things, not the things that hurt you, that break you, that, that make you not like God. So that glory, it's sort of rooted in this idea of this royal priesthood. So don't get confused by that. This is an Old Testament idea, this priesthood. You, you intercede for the people, but the royal priesthood is the priest. And, and think about Israel was in slavery and they were called into the royal priesthood. The priest literally is the right-hand man to the king. Okay, so not only do you get to be near the king, and who's the the king. Jesus. God is, God is king. Jesus is the king. You get, as the royal priesthood and this glory idea is that you know the king. You are close to the king. You advocate for the king. You do the work of the king. Yeah. There's a nearness to God that is, that is in this priesthood thing, so don't get confused by that, but that's, that's the glory, that you're close to God and you start to know what it is and you start to do the work of God and then the king protects you. The king fights for you. Your battles are his battles because you're his right-hand man. And this, this idea to subdue the earth, God made this earth and as a royal priesthood, it is our job to do the work of God in the land. It's sort of just a, it's a metaphor, it's also practical um, and but as the king fights for you and as you honor the character of the king and everything you are and everything you do, you begin to reflect the king and you represent the king and you love the king. So there's this idea of two human functions that humans are made to reflect God, 
we, become, we get close to him, and we know what he has for us, and we know who he is, and we, it boils down to love people. We speak that image of God to people, okay? Not you're wrong, but God has this for you in your brokenness, okay? That idea. And the second idea is to reflect the world back to God. And I think that's the heaviest part of this glory thing, but it's, it's worship, we worship God. When the world is a mess, we cry out for the world. We fight for the world. I'm here to stand alongside of you. So multiply that, that idea of the glory of God. Whatever is close to the king, that's what we're multiplying. That's what we're fruitful in. He has that for us. So that's kind of that idea of glory. After the fall, humanity, after sin, after you sin, after you're really broken, after I sin, we're still made in the image of God. Yeah. We're just frustrated by sin because it gets in between us and then we're doing this image that's not what God made us for and it gets confusing and complicated and people say stuff like, if that's God, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. We're breaking that image and we're not reflecting it. So this mandate, this covenant promise, it, even with Abraham, it, it went from be fruitful and multiply to Abraham, God said, you will be fruitful, you will multiply. Yeah. And that's a promise for each and every one of us that was inaugurated by the cross. It, when the cross happened and the, the breath went, we sang about it today, the breath went back into Jesus, he defeated all the things that made it so we couldn't do that, and he says, now you will. Hold on to that. You are image bearers, every single one of you. Be fruitful, multiply, and that's the cultural mandate. I love that. I love what Paul says in, in Corinthians when he's kind of talking about this. Uh, he, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians eleven seven, he says that man, you and I, are the image, but we're also the glory of God. We're not just his image, we're also his glory. So as we be fruitful and multiply, as we work the earth and subdue the earth, we are literally filling the earth with the glory of God. We are his best work. The human body, we all know this, is the most complex, the most fascinating creation. Every single one of us is different from everybody else, and yet at the same time, we are all made in the same image of God. Just to show you kind of how, how big that image is, how glorious that image is, Ephesians 2.10 says we're actually God's masterpiece. But if you look at every single one of the people in this room, and you look around, and you see how different everybody is, and yet you realize that all of us have attributes of God in us that maybe some of the others don't have, you realize, wow, man, God is amazing. He is so big. Okay, so hang on to that. Hang on to that thought. Man is the image. You are the image of God. You are the glory of God, right? But, but then, and then lock that in your brains because we're going to get to that a lot over the next couple of weeks, right? But now look again at what Paul says in Romans. He says, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, mainly his eternal power and his divine nature, They've been clearly perceived. It's obvious to people ever since the creation of the world the things, uh, the things that have been made. So every time you see what God's created, it should be obvious to you how great God is, how big God is. Ever since the creation of the world, everything that demonstrates that God is God, mainly, uh, you know, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, Every time we see those things, they're clear as day to us. It's simply by looking at all the things that God has done and, and looking at each other and looking at the world, it should, we should be so blown away by how great God is. And Paul says here that everybody has that same view. Everybody knows how amazing creation is. Everybody knows how amazing God is, so he says they're without excuse. Then it says this a bit further down in verse 22 of one, Romans 1. So claiming to be wise claiming to have wisdom, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, immortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Actually, before that, if you get to verse 21, uh, just the verse before that, it says, although they knew God, they didn't honor God. They exchanged the glory and they did not honor. See, honor and glory in both Greek and in Hebrew, are the exact same word. Uh, here in Romans, we're in Greek, and the word is doxa. Glory is doxa. In Hebrew, it's the word kavod, and it is the word honor, and it is the word glory. Same exact word. Um, in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew definition of honor is literally to have, to have weight, to be heavy or weighty. So when you show honor to another person, 
you're essentially giving that person value. Like when a king would enter a room and everybody would bow down to him, that was an acknowledgement that, hey, I feel the heaviness when you enter the room. I feel that. You carry a very, a, a very specific weight with you, and there's something very heavy that you carry with you, and, and I need to acknowledge that. It's the same way when we worship God. We are acknowledging that weight. We, and when we do that, we should be overwhelmed by it. Take, for example, this verse in Psalms. Psalms um, 19.1 says, The heavens declare the what? The kavod, the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, the way that the ancient world would have perceived this passage and passages like it was that, that even the thought, guys, of a world that's so infinite was one that was so heavy, it would literally knock you off your feet when you really think about it. When, when you see your small life in comparison to this eternal, enormous universe in God's big, big, big world, you realize there's a heaviness there that's reminding you that on your best day, you can only comprehend a fraction of a sliver of all that God is and all that God has created. And when you view it from that perspective and you view your life from that perspective, of course you're going to honor how glorious God is. You acknowledge how heavy his presence is. So kavod is honor and its glory. Now, I haven't done a word picture for you guys in a while, and I'm going to do one, so I want to explain this to you first because it has been a while. But in ancient Hebrew... Before the modern version that we have, kind of the blocky letters that actually came from this, the language was first written pictorially. So it was a picture language. So literally every letter of the Hebrew alphabet was a picture, and most words were made up of two to four of these pictures that have now transformed into the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew words that we have. So when you put these pictures together in this language, uh, they often told stories that related to the word. And some people will tell you that they, they believe, oh, that's nothing. We shouldn't put any stock in that. It does not matter. It's not what it's trying to say. Uh, you shouldn't even be considered, and that's fine to think that. Um, others believe that there's a lot that should be, there's a lot of significance in them. We personally are of the belief that nothing is just random. It's not, it's not all that random. So we study them, and when we do, we do it from this perspective of saying, well, these are illustrations. These are not actual literal definitions. They're illustrations. But if there's something in this that can help us understand an ancient truth better, we're going to explore it. So for kavod, this was the pictures they would get. It would be the picture of a hand, which a hand in that day was, this is the thing that opens. The next was what they considered to be a picture of a house. It doesn't look much like a house, but they called it a house. Uh, and a house always symbolized what was inside. What's inside, like what's inside you. What, uh, a house is where you take comfort. A house is where you get warm. Uh, you know, a house is where you go for shelter. So it's a hand, it's a house, and then the last one is a door. They called this a door. And so the word picture uh, in ancient Hebrew for honor was honor is the, is the hand or it's the thing that opens the inside door. Now, I have no doubt that you will find relationally in your life, among your peers, among family, among leadership, whatever it may be, whatever setting you may find yourself in, if you honor the other person, it always opens doors that otherwise may not be open. Think about this. When you truly learn to honor, you will stop treating people in the way that they may even deserve to be treated. And instead, you'll start treating them as their worth. You'll start treating them as their worth. Honor is based on a weight, a measurement of worth. That's how they measured worth in the ancient world. And we know from the cross of Jesus Christ that Jesus says they were all worth dying for. You were all worth dying for. I was worth dying for. Sometimes I don't feel that way. Which means that no matter what someone has done to you, that does not affect the way that you honor them. And guys, this goes both ways. When you honor someone, it opens the inside door to maybe what you get back from them. But it goes the other way too. It's not just the influence you gain. It opens the inside door to your own self. And when you open that inside door, especially in the realm of honor for God, it opens the door to be formed, to be shaped, you. Yeah, when you so honor someone else, it's for them, but it's for you too. Don't underestimate the power of this. This is beautiful, what they've sort of seen here. It's a really nice picture of what already exists. It doesn't contradict what we understand about honor. There's something really cool about the doorpost in the Jewish ideas. Um, I mean, 
This is where God works in us. This is, this is sort of the image and the activity of God. You think about Passover, they put blood on the doorpost. The doorpost is before you enter. When you think about the tabernacle, the inside door is where God dwells. That's where you go for the spirit of God. That center inside room, that inside, you go through the curtain, the inside door. There's lots here, and you don't have to understand it all to just understand. It's really important. Um, so then you have the, in Deuteronomy 6, you have the Shema. Yeah. Uh, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love yeah. the Lord your God. And, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might. So in, in the Jewish tradition, you do the mezuzah, which don't worry about the word, but it's this thing that you post on the inside doorpost wow. to remind you for the Jewish, the, the Israel, just all the things they went through of who am I, the image of God? Who are we? This is a reminder that God is near. Every time you walk through the door, you're like, I am his. He is here. He's fighting for me. I'm close to the king. This is the doorpost. We're entering through. We're reminding to bear the image. We're reminded of the cultural mandate, the very beginning. What were you made for? You were made to be his, and you were made to be close to him. And that is the reminder. And that doorpost, it matters, that inside door. Don't exclude it. I don't need to honor people. I don't care about my influence. Eh. It's not for them. It's for you then. You care about God forming and shaping you and making you whole. Okay? So when we close the door, think about what happens then. Right. That's a crazy thought of like, because I've always read, we we talked about this last night and I've always read this as, well, you're opening the door to another person. And sometimes it can feel like that is true, but it also can get really selfish. But like, what if you're literally closing your own door? Like we think about with God. Right? When you honor God and you just honor his design, like even though sometimes that is a more difficult path, like we're going to talk through that. Sometimes it's a more difficult path to do what God says. And sometimes it means holding back on the things that you want and the things that you desire and even the things that you think that you deserve. When you honor him, it opens that door to connect with him and, and, and it, for him to connect in your life. But when you don't honor where honors do and you don't give God that glory, of a God who's so infinite that literally compared to what he's created and what he is, we're just so teeny tiny. And when you start to think you don't need that, you close the door to him. But really, when you think about it, especially in context of what she just said, what if it's your own door you're closing? Okay, think about your kid for a second. If you have children here and they go in their room and they slam the door, what is your response? I need to go in and talk to them but they need to be there. And they're letting me know they're going to be there and I am not welcome. So think about slamming the door to your heart by not honoring something that God's asked you to honor. You're just saying, I don't want your image. I don't want your glory. Even though, you know, we're, we all know we're saying, God, please come knock on the door, please. But I mean, the Bible's really clear about him knocking on the door and coming in. But we're kind of blocking and shutting out that depth of ourselves yeah. and that, that image and nearness of God. Yeah, yeah. That's your formation. That's why you come to this place, right? Honor is central. Yeah, and we, and, you know, we get in, we're going to get, keep going more through this because I know this passage is super loaded, but it's like God, God, give, God gives them up, God gives them up. Well, what if, what if we're just shutting the door on God? He doesn't, and he, he, what, 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 is, what is he to do? What is, what is the parent to do? Like, okay, let's, you know. If you figure it out, please let me know because my kids are growing up fast. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, okay, so. Um, I'm going to move on from that thought a little bit, but you, again, these are things we need to keep in our hearts and ponder them as we move forward. But uh, one of the things that in our passage in Romans that Paul tells us, and he goes back to creation because he's trying to show us these things have always been true. God has always been this way. From the beginning of time, it's always been true. The world was ordered the way that the world is ordered for a very specific reason. And when things function within that order, the glory of God fills the whole earth. But now read this again. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, Paul says that what takes place is an exchange. An exchange. The glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal men and animals. Um, and then in a verse that comes uh, up a little bit later, he talks about, uh, how, about sexuality and he talks about how people exchange what's natural for what's unnatural. And then he explains the exchange that takes place when people who are called to be image bearers of God instead start living 
unjustly in the world, and, they, and the slanderers, murderers, gossips, strife, uh, he, yeah, he describes them as foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He starts getting into all these things, and basically the point that he's trying to make here, the big point is, hey, if the world becomes this, the world does not go on. The world cannot continue like this. And so we're going to talk more on that next week. But in, under, in order to understand the heart of what it is that Paul is saying in this passage, we first have to understand what Paul's quoting. Because Paul quotes the Old Testament 51 times in Romans. And a lot of times we get to these passages and it's like, man, Paul's saying the hardest stuff in the entire Bible. And a lot of times he's quoting something else when he does it. So it matters what he's quoting and what it's saying. So um, when he quotes this thing about an exchange... He's actually quoting Psalm 106, uh, starting in 19. Uh, It's mainly 20. This is what Chris read at the beginning of the service today. Now, I'm going to read this for you, Psalm uh, 106, 19 through 23. It's talking about when Israel built the golden calf. Uh, And they worshipped it as if it was the gods that brought them out of Egypt. Now, our daughter actually drew this beautiful picture of the golden calf. I don't know if you guys can grasp everything that's going on in here. We have Moses with the two tablets. We have the calf. We have the people. I love this picture. So I figured instead of putting the slides up, you can just kind of look at her picture as I read out of my Bible. Um, Very excited about that. But just for context, before I read this, the Ten Commandments begin by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out. I brought you out of Egypt. I did something amazing for you. I redeemed you. I brought you here. I'm the one true God. But then Israel, they build this weird golden calf thing. When Moses is gone, he's going to get, he's going to talk to God and get the Ten Commandments. And Israel builds this calf because they are weird and they don't want to wait for Moses anymore. And then they start actually saying about this calf, they're praising it, saying, these are the gods that brought you out. So that's just like spit in the face to God, Okay. Now, this is what the psalmist says about that moment. And I'm going to read this uh, from, from 106, 19 through 23. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. Then verse 20, here it is. They exchanged the glory, the kavod of God, for the image of an, ax, of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt— Wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he being God, said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him and turned away his wrath from destroying them. In other words, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped the creature rather than the creator. So that's the first exchange sort of that Paul's talking about here. They exchange the truth for a lie, and they, ex- they exchange the glory. Okay, so doxa, glory, kavod, right? When we look to the sky and we see the stars, we begin to try to number them. We realize, God, you are so big, we can't even begin to grasp the depth of all that you are. Everything that God created and everything that God is is so far beyond anything that you and I can comprehend. And yet Israel exchanged that to build a stupid calf. They did not honor God. They did not allow themselves to feel the weight of his glory of how infinite it all is. And Paul says that what they did when they did that was they actually traded glory for essentially something that will come to nothing at all. And instead they worshiped a golden calf. But you have to hear this. And we have to frame this now before we get into what we're going to get into in a couple of weeks. Because as the church, we have to understand how exchanges take place and how we need to respond. And you cannot read Psalms 106 without getting to verse 23. And there's something in this that's very, very vital. Again, here it is. Therefore, he being God said that he, that God would destroy them. I'm going to destroy Israel. My wrath is coming down on them. And they would have done that had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. See, the Christian community, you and I, our, 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 our body, we're, we're a body of people who look out for one another, and we're on a mission to redeem the world, to save the world, to take Jesus into the broken places. We pick each other up when we fall. And we stand in the gap for each other when times are rough. 
The ministry of reconciliation, which is our heart for our entire church, it mandates that we love people and we work to reconcile them back to Jesus by not counting their trespasses against them. That is what 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says. It says when we do this, it's, we, we do not count people's trespasses against them, which means we meet people right where they are, we love them right where they are, and we show them Jesus Christ right where they are. We look out for them right where they are, and we protect them right where they are. Now, this is such a great example of that, because in the story of the golden calf, Moses loved the people of Israel. And if you know much about that story, he gets really mad. He's really angry with the way that Israel acted, and yet he still loved them enough to put himself between God and what they deserve, because he did not want them to perish. The psalmist says that Moses stood in the breach. It's the Hebrew word peretz. Sorry, where am I at? Oh, here we go. Something went good there. Okay, it's the Hebrew word peretz. And peretz is, is the gap between God's wrath and the guilty people, the people who deserve God's wrath. And so what, this, what, the, what the psalmist says here is that what essentially happened was God's wrath is going to fall on people for what they deserve, but Moses actually said, I'm going to stand in the middle of that. There's a verse in Ezekiel that says, uh, that is talking about God, and, or it's talking from the perspective of God, and God says, you know what? I am looking for somebody. I'm looking for anybody who will stand in the gap on behalf of broken people. And then what it says is, is, it, is they'll stand in the gap and they will actually build up a wall is the way that he says it. A wall between the wrath of God that is just and the people who justly deserve that wrath. He says, I want you to stand in the gap. But Ezekiel says he found nobody. He couldn't find a single person who was willing to put themselves out there like that. But God's looking for somebody who will build that up. Now, one of the reasons why I believe that some of the issues that Paul's going to get into here a little bit later in these next few um, verses have become as big of a deal as they are in our world today is because when Christians should have been the ones standing in the gap for people, instead we're the ones just like the Pharisees in John 8 throwing stones at them. One example is obviously same-sex relationships. He gets into that in a, couple, uh, in a couple verses and we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks because we're not going to ignore the things that are in the Bible. But the reality is, right, the reason that is such a divide between it's like us and them, it shouldn't be, but it's like Christians here, the rest of the world there, is because the entire time that Christians are supposed to be loving people and meeting people where they are and showing people what Jesus looks like, they're throwing stones at people and telling them how guilty they are all the time. That is not the gospel. We, we should be coming alongside people and just, just because the exchange for them maybe look different than what the results of the exchange look like for you. Sometimes that's hard for people. Like, hey, there was an exchange that took place. It took place for you. It took place for me. And mine looks like this, but yours looks like this. And so because yours looks like this, we got to handle this so much differently. Right? We're going to see this very, very clearly coming up. Paul gives this list of things, and he knows on this list of things that the Jews are going to be reading this, and they're going to be like, dude, that's not me. That's the Gentiles. You're right. They're going to be practically applauding. Like, these people are evil. These people deserve the wrath of God. And then Paul flips it on them and shows them how you're just as guilty. He puts everybody on that list. So if you want to get into the list, you've got to realize that everybody's on it. He goes, he goes into that, hey, you know what, Jews? You and I are just as guilty. But what makes us guilty? So if you look at the context of Paul and who he is and where he comes from, you think about him as a Pharisee. Now, I know we've misunderstood the Pharisees do this. I mean, Jesus kind of talks bad about the Pharisees, but he's just trying to help them out. Because in, in the concept of the Pharisees, um, they were basically standing there. The world was falling apart, and they were saying, we've been given this law. The Messiah is our hope, but the Messiah hasn't come. What are we doing wrong? How on earth can we get it right? And basically, the approach of the Pharisees was, well, we have this law. If enough of us can just get it right, maybe the Messiah will come. And they were in this time, even after Jesus came. I mean, part of Paul's message is, guys, the Messiah came. That's part of the message. That's, it's, 
we missed it. We missed it. And, and the law is what we thought would bring the Messiah. So there's sort of this tension between the, the Gentiles or anyone that's not Jewish and the Jews between let's keep the law and the Messiah will come. And then this is for everyone. And there's, there's some tension. There's con- some confusion. But here's what I want you to understand. I hope you don't hear that we're saying, oh, it's just a list of sins. These are the results. These are sins. This is a list of sins. But what I want you to understand is that the sin is, it's an identifier of something so much deeper. And this is, yeah. this is the example that came to me, like just thinking about it. I hope it helps you understand. So I have a niece who, um, is here right now, she's actually. here, she's uh, 11 years old. When she was two or three, she was diagnosed with leukemia. Leukemia was not the first sign to know she was deeply sick in her body. It's, it's basically cancer in your blood. It takes over your immune system and it destroys your entire body. Yeah. But there were some signs that made them go to the doctor. And if the doctor would have just treated those symptoms, okay, understand me here, the, the bruises on her shins or the sickness that just kept coming back and wouldn't go away, if they would have ignored that, they never would have checked her blood and found the white blood cells were just way off because the leukemia had taken over her, her immune system. Okay, she, if, if that doctor would have said, oh, you have some bruises, put some cream on it, quit bumping into things, go home, you'll be fine. She would not be here today. Yeah. This is the concept that Paul is trying to help us see. You see all these things, but that's not the root of the problem. Yes, that's a problem. No, that should not continue. But if we so start good. there, we'll never diagnose the cancer. We have to diagnose the cancer or the world will literally end. The glory of God cannot go on when we don't bear the image of God. And when we look at those sins and only take care of the sins and we never take care of the image of God or how we think of God, the exchange for a lie, we never correct the lie, the cancer, the leukemia, the bruises never go away. The sin just keeps coming back. And that's part of the problem with the the, the approach of the Pharisees, and that's part of what Paul's addressing here, is stop trying to treat the symptoms. Yeah. They're bad. They're not good. But if you start there, you'll never get to the root. Right. Start there and look further. And we, part of our jobs is to see the symptom and go deeper. Let's fix the image. Let's tell you the truth. Let's re-exchange that lie that you've exchanged the truth for. Let me give you a truth to exchange yeah. that instead. That's bearing the image. That's multiplying ourselves. That's multiplying the image and the glory of God. Yeah. And, and how do we do it? You know, how do we, how do, how do we, how do we, how do we stand on behalf of people without crossing lines? How do we, you know, what do we, how do we bear the image of God to a world that is so unlike him? How do we stand in the gap? You know, when Moses comes down, he sees Israel worshiping this golden calf, and he's angry, but he petitions to God. He said, God, do that thing that you do. God, you are so loving. You are so merciful. Please show mercy to these people. He, do that thing. Do that grace thing. And what Paul's doing here is he's taking us back to a time and a place where there was a problem. There was an exchange that took place, and it should not have taken place. And yet the very passage that he's quoting, I believe, shows us what we can do as Christians to not be the one who are trying to hurt people who struggle in different ways than we do. This golden calf, it's in direct opposition to everything that God designed and everything that God planned for Israel. It just is. That's very, very clear. And God was willing to punish them, but he let Moses get in his way. He let Moses stand up for the people who were sinful. He let Moses stand up for the people who were guilty. It really, to me, resembles that image of John 8. When Jesus is, uh, he steps, intervenes on behalf of the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, and he stands by her, he stands in the gap between her and her sin. He knows she's guilty. We all know she's guilty. But he stands in the gap for her between her and her accusers. And what that means when I read that, and the more I learn about the glory and the image of God, is that when we learn to stand in the gap for people, rather than being the ones throwing stones at people, we are bearing the image of God, because that is exactly what God did. That is exactly what Jesus did. And in the spiritual realm, there's, there's a spiritual realm and a practical realm, but I believe in the spiritual realm, we stand in the gap for people through prayer. 
We get on our hands and our knees and we plead with God, God, have mercy. Move in our world. This place is broken. It's so screwed up. But God, you can do anything. Interject. Move. But also pray and intercede for your your own life, for your own marriages, for your own ways that you can be a better reflection of God so that he can move in your life so that we can set a better example of what Jesus looks like to the people that we have the opportunity every day to bring him into, to our workplaces, that we might be the only Jesus those people see. We might be the only opportunity to carry him into those places. So we stand in the gap spiritually through prayer. But we stand in the gap practically through accepting people as they are. But please hear this, not affirming everything about them. That is not the gospel, and I need you to understand why. There could be no greater disservice to a person who is seeking a relationship with Jesus than to tell them they do not need Jesus. And when you say that someone is just fine in their sin and in their lives and whatever that exchange looks like for them, that is essentially the epitome of saying, you don't need God. You can keep being who you are, you can keep doing what you do, and it does not change anything. But until, you don't don't do that, but you meet people where they are, you accept people where they are, and until a person feels accepted and loved for who they are, they're never going to be open to the Holy Spirit convicting them. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict. Our job is just to love broken people. Our job is to meet people where they are. Our job is to show people what what Jesus looks like. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict them, and it is our job to love the broken and to show the broken what Jesus looks like. And that what Jesus looks like is wholeness. Are you starting to see that Paul, this is the mission of God, is wholeness, reconciliation, restoration. And and when you look at somebody and say, "Ah, you're not actually broken, That's just a list of things that happen when you are broken. Like, slow down for a second. Slow down. Jesus stood in the gap so that we could be fruitful. We could multiply the image of who God is. And that environment is our job. Here at Courage Church, we, we cultivate the romance between you and Jesus, that's kind of what we sort of see the church Sunday morning building is. Let's, let's help people just fall in, madly in love with Jesus, with who God is, with who he's created them to be. And that environment is, it's got to be for wholeness and restoration, reconciliation. It's got to be this, this approach of, you are fighting a battle, and I would like to fight with you. Yeah. You're worth fighting for. Your battle is hard. But that's not determining their battle, that's the Holy Spirit's job. The Bible is really clear that the Holy Spirit is to convict. We have to be faithful to the word, and there's, there's a lot there, and I don't want to say don't tell people they're in sin, because we have to keep each other accountable. That's, that's not what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about picketing people that don't care about God and don't want to be whole. Maybe we could tell them how much God loves them and that they can be whole, and I think that we would start to fix some of that brokenness. Um, but this idea that when you exchange the truth for the lie, you take on this lie that maybe it's God didn't make me like this. God didn't make me to be whole. We, we break this honor toward creation, this, this glory. God didn't make the earth. God didn't make the sun. It's just beautiful because that's nature. Okay, when you start to excuse those things as who God is, that Psalm 19 that we read, the handiwork of the sky, How do I fix this exchange for the lie? You start by honoring who God is in the world around you. A baby is born. God did that. That's a miracle. That is the handiwork of God. My life is okay. I was in a car accident, and I'm fine. I'm untouched. That's the handiwork of God. You're protected. You're provided for. You're whole. You're okay good things that we need to start honoring those things and as we honor and recognize that handiwork we start taking the lie out and getting grabbing a hold of the truth and then we honor it and it opens the inside door right proclaiming the handiwork honoring God and then you become his beloved you become his handiwork he does a thing in you I hope you can see that this wrath, it, it, it's, it can be scary, but for you, it should be exciting. 
God is identifying the cancer in your life and he's removing the lie and he wants today not just eternity eternity matters but today he wants to give you the truth and the image he wants to do that now do you want to exchange that lie does anybody here just want to say you know what I've been believing a lie I think that there's some lies that I would like to exchange that for some truth can anybody say that here today you have a lie you want to we raise your hand don't be embarrassed. I would like to. I have some lies I need to exchange for some truth. Do you have that? Okay. Let's do that this morning. Let's encourage people who need the truth. The, ho- the Holy Spirit convicts. John 16, 8. And the truth is, you, my friend, are his beloved. He has wholeness for you. And he is waiting at the doorpost of the inside door of your life and your heart and he wants in so bad because he's so broken seeing you broken he's so broken seeing you believe the lie that you're worthless that you're not worth it don't believe that lie anymore that you're not gonna make it you're not gonna be anybody you aren't anybody those are lies stop believing the lie and open the door we're gonna take communion here in a second and I want you when you take this communion to remember what Jesus did for you. I want you to exchange that lie. If you need to take a second up here, please do. I want you to take the lie. Tell God the lie you've been believing and ask him to exchange it. Ask him to replace it with the truth of wholeness in you. Receive him today. Exchange it with Jesus. Leave it here. Leave it here. Because when Jesus died on that cross, he took all those lies to hell he defeated death left him there locked him up threw away the key came back and declared wholeness that's the basic basic essential of what happened restoration of this sin-ridden life suffocating the truth Paul says suffocated the truth this cancer that suppresses the immune system this sin that suppresses the truth. We've got to identify past the bruises. We've got to diagnose what's really going on here. You guys do that with me? Why don't you stand up? We're going to sing a song. We are not trying to sin in our lives. That happens when we take away the lie, when we restore the image and the glory and the honor of God. Are you guys starting to understand what those words mean? I hope that it means more to you, not less. There are lots of things that they mean, but we want to expand that. We want wholeness and full restoration. That's what God called you to. You are a human. That's what he made you for.